we are on a pathway to global warming of more than doubled 1.5 degree limit agreed in Paris. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. And the results will be catastrophic. This is a climate emergency. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. But high-emitting governments and corporations are not just turning a blind eye. They are adding fuel to the flames. They are choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels when cheaper, renewable solutions provide green jobs, energy security and greater price stability. That's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is one of the world's leading authorities on the climate crisis. It's spent decades telling governments what's coming and how to stop it. The IPCC's latest report says climate change can't be stopped, but we can temper its very worst effects if those in power go beyond meatless Mondays and electric cars. The world is heating up, and we know how to stop it. Getting it done might be easier than you think. The only question is whether we will. We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We're discussing the latest IPCC report. Joining us to help break it down is Co Barrett. She's a vice chair for the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. She's also the senior advisor for climate at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Co, welcome to 1A. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Zara Hirjeep. She's a senior science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Zara, glad to have you with us. Great to be here. So, Co, this is the third IPCC report released in the past 12 months. The last one explored how countries are adapting to the effects of climate change. This one explains what countries need to do to stop it from getting any worse or becoming catastrophic. What were your main takeaways from the report? Yeah, so um, the report that we released about a week ago, uh, as you say, completes kind of our trilogy of reports that the scientists have put out over the last year. And this kind of gives us a complete picture of everything we know about climate change. Um, it's both sobering and optimistic, although <laughs> not in equal parts. And, and the latest report makes it clear the world has not renew- reduced its emissions enough and that the window to limit warming to 1.5 degrees um, is quickly closing. However, it also emphasizes the choices we can make as individuals and communities are an important part of meeting global climate goals. Azar, we're going to talk about what we need to do in a moment, but this report also makes clear the timeline we need to be working under. What is that timeline? Yeah, this latest report has kind of condensed the timeline that we previously knew on how quickly we have to act. Basically, we have three years, or by 2025, to do what's called peaking our emissions. In other words, we really need to start seeing our emissions go down rather than going up over the next couple of years, as Co said, if we want to be able to keep a future of 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees within reach. Now, Co, just put that into some context for us. If we don't peak by 2025, and again, this is just three years from now, what happens? Well, um, temperature continues to rise 
And uh, one would hope that as action intensifies, we get a chance to kind of turn that around. It's called overshoot, where we might exceed 1.5 degrees, but then also as action kicks in, we can reduce that warming over time. We're talking to Co Barrett. She's currently a vice chair for the IPCC, and she's the senior advisor for climate at NOAA. Also with us is BuzzFeed's Zara Hirji. Now, Co, this report is all about mitigating the climate crisis, primarily, primarily by decarbonizing economies. What needs to happen in the short and medium term in order for us to decarbonize? Well, I'm, I mean, clearly we have got to transition society to, a, um, to decarbonization, so to wean ourselves from fossil fuels um, in the energy industry, transport sectors, in our buildings, in agriculture, in all of those areas. Uh, so that's kind of the big message, uh, decarbonization. Uh, but there's other parts of the kind of solution space to climate change that this report and others that we've put out have um, addressed. Uh, One is the need to remove carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere, and another is to adapt to to the warming world. So uh, taken together, uh, we have laid out the complete (laughs) problem space, but also, importantly, the solution space. And and this report is referring to the climate crisis globally, but specifically for the U.S., What do you think needs to happen here? Well, clearly we need to stay on the path to increasing our use of renewable um, energy um, as kind of a source for both the energy sector, for industry, for transport, um, um, and also for our buildings. So, um, you know, electrification and using renewables for that part of our um, society is really a key to all, to all of the solutions. Azara, according to an Associated Press poll from last fall, more than half of Americans want Congress to make sure that more of the nation's electricity comes from clean energy. That same poll found 59% of Americans said global warming is a very or extremely important issue for them. What action are we seeing at the congressional level to implement any of these solutions? There is a lot of discussion, but in terms of action, there hasn't been much. Last year, there was this big package that was announced and under discussion. Everyone's probably heard of it, the Build Back Better Act or the Build Back Better Plan, which would have included billions in new funding for exactly what we're talking about, increasing clean energy, renewable energy, and a bunch of other technologies that can help shift our country to, you know, be decarbonized. But that has stalled in Congress. And I think what we're seeing right now is a question, it's up in the air. Will they be able to pass this package or at least the climate portion of the package? Because of course the Build Back Better plan included much more than just climate. But there does seem to be potentially some growing consensus among Democrats who have a very narrow majority in the Senate um, to get something done. A lot of this really depends on the will uh, of Senator West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who has been one of the key kind of players in the discussion, but also um, an obstacle in getting it passed. And I think we do not know yet if that will happen, but it is something that a lot of people are 
pushing for right now, and perhaps we will see some renewed discussions and interest following this latest report. Lazara, and have you found that when these reports are released, that it it ramps up the sense of urgency in Congress because there always seems to be a disconnect by the between the urgency we hear in these reports and the resulting action. There is definitely often a disconnect, and I think we're start we're seeing that now as well. And that's because there's so much else going on in the world. I think there's much more discussion about the conflict in Ukraine with Russia and how that is complicating our climate goals uh, and leading to a spike in some energy prices, gas and oil prices specifically. And that has actually triggered a debate about whether we should be increasing our fossil fuels in the short term um, to kind of deal with a projected decrease or energy crunch if countries are trying to shift away from relying specifically on Russian fossil fuels. And so we actually saw a lot more discussion last week. There was, in fact, a whole hearing on the gas prices um, and what to do kind of in the wake of this emerging energy, near-term energy crisis, rather than a discussion about the latest IPCC report. But of course, the general public has a role to play in this. And so we did see scientists across the country go out in large numbers and do some protests over the week. And there have been a lot of activists, activism, specifically at Senator Joe Manchin's um, own kind of coal facilities that he has a stake in in West Virginia, where people were going out and trying to specifically speak to him by going out to these facilities and saying, you need to pay attention to this report and you need to do more on climate. Now, Co, when scientists write the IPCC reports, UN member states are allowed input on the summary for policymakers' fact sheet. Disagreements over what it should include caused an hours-long delay in releasing a mitigation, this mitigation report. Those negotiations are confidential, so we don't know what the delay was about, but briefly explain more broadly how UN policymakers are involved in these reports. Sure. Um, I think the the, policy, the procedure that we use to produce our reports is a really powerful um, procedure because what we do is we have the scientists produce their reports. It goes through various levels of review, including by governments. And then we spend some time, in this last case it was two weeks, um, with scientists and governments in the virtual room together, um, agreeing word for word on the summary and reaching consensus. And, you know, that takes time. It always has. Um, this is not the first time we've gone over time <laughs> for an approval. But honestly, that exchange between scientists and governments, I believe, really um, improves the report. It makes it more readable to policymakers. It clarifies some of the scientific jargon. But it also helps the policymakers to really understand the science that goes into our reports. Every year, the YEL Program for Climate Change Communication aggregates the results of dozens of national surveys about climate change. Last year, they found 61% of Americans think Congress should do more to address global warming, and 70% believe corporations should do more. Raphael agrees. Hey, this is Raphael in Ann Arbor, and I think that helping out in our communities to reduce emissions and impacts on climate change is very important, but I also think that, you know, taxing these billionaires and corporations who are incredibly 
incredibly outsized in their contributions to climate change and carbon emissions is also equally, if not more important. So I think that the onus should really be on focusing on these larger corporations and industries to mitigate their impact. You know, we can only do so much. I can shop at the farmer's market. I can buy a fuel efficient car, but I'm not a corporate entity producing billions of, of tons of emissions into the atmosphere. So, you know, I think, I think that the conversation needs to incorporate that. Raphael, thanks for that message. Let's turn now to Joshua Rhodes. He's a research associate at the Weber Energy Group. That's a research group at the University of Texas at Austin. Joshua, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So one of the major solutions given in this latest IPCC report is a quick transition to renewables for electricity. First, do we have the technology for a quick transition? Well, we really do have a lot of the technologies that we need to, um, you know, to, to transition the energy sector to a, you know, lower carbon, uh, to a lower, lower carbon sector. I mean, we've been deploying renewables very quickly in this country and they've been, been deploying around the world. I think we'll need some more support for that to push them beyond kind of where generally markets would take them. But I mean, I really think we have a lot of the technologies we need to get there. And when you say support, do you mean financial support, public support? Yeah, well, both and, really. Um, you know, we'll need, uh, as some of the, you know, legislation that has been, you know, put together in Washington that hasn't fully, you know, gone through, um, looking at, you know, fully getting more renewables out there, but but also looking at, you know, how do we deploy, you know, clean, firm technologies? Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the studies out there that show how we get to a low-carbon energy sector, you know, show us getting pretty far with renewable energy, you know, depending on where you are, 70, 80 percent. But there, there also does seem to be a need for some things that we're able to control to turn off and on. Um, and so more research and development and also, you know, potentially more support for things like maybe nuclear or geothermal or, or other things like that that we, you know, can use to to keep the lights on for everybody. So where are the major barriers in this transition, specifically for the U.S.? Yeah, so I think some of the major barriers that we have are, are actually building the, building the connections between um, the renewable energy that we're, that we're deploying. Uh, this, and then I'm, what I mean by that is transmission lines, the big wires and poles that move, you know, um, electricity from, you know, where it's produced, typically wind kind of in the central part of the country, uh, solar kind of in the southern part of the country, uh, moving it to where people consume energy kind of on the, on the, on the coast there. And so, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen in the past, there's been a lot of, or in, in the past and in the not so uh, distant past, we've seen a lot of, um, uh, res- uh, resistance against things like transmission lines to to move clean clean energy around, and I think that's that's really something we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to work on going forward. Well, as part of it, also reimagining the grid itself and and making it more interconnected nationally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we so the U.S. has three electricity grids: basically the the eastern grid, which is basically the Rocky Mountains east; the western grid, which is the Rockies west; and then Texas, which is its own. Um, island of of electricity. I think I think better connections across those, or even you know a kind of a, over, a a big grid that kind of overlays that and allows us to move you know energy around um, would be would be good. It would allow us to better utilize the resources um, that we have. Um, you know, if the East Coast could consume West Coast power and, and you know et cetera, I think we'd uh, we'd be much better able to match supply and demand. And you know, whenever the wind's blowing, sun shining, or or other you know, other things like geothermal where they're, where they're located, I think we'd better be able to, to move that around. Now, the report notes that the cost of renewable technology has fallen since 2010 and in many places is cheaper than fossil fuel alternatives. 
So what are the sort of upfront cost considerations of this transition? And then what would that look like longer term for consumers? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's kind of a change in the way that we've done electricity in the past. You know, in the past, we would build power plants and then they would have a a large operational cost going forward because we'd have to continuously put fuel into them, whether that was coal or natural gas or oil, um, to, to make that electricity. Kind of the new paradigm is is a lot of the money is spent up front with you know putting the concrete and steel in the ground for for wind turbines and, and solar panels, and then they're relatively cheap to move uh, to make electricity because the wind the wind's generally free the sun's generally free, um, but it's just a different paradigm in the way that that look the the way that that works, and then we you know need some storage and things like that um, as well which is also upfront capital cost and not necessarily. Um, you know, high operational costs um, through their through their lifetime. So, and if we if we are if we do this thoughtfully, like I said, if we you know generally if we're you know seventy eighty percent renewables and things like that, the the way that the what makes up the cost of electricity can change, and we're actually seeing that change as we're deploying more renewables. But it can but the cost can re- can stay roughly the same as what it is now. Um, Doing 100% of this or that, any as an engineer, anytime someone uses absolutes like that, it makes me a bit nervous. And I think a lot of studies show that if we you know, push to 100% of, of any current technology, that that can give us risk for price going in the future. And so if, if we're talking about a mix then of, of energies, are we saying a combination of wind and solar and perhaps hydroelectric or nuclear, what would that pie look like? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that last bit is gonna is is gonna depend on you know where where one is. You know, we've got grids um, around the country. There are some parts of this country that have a lot of um, have a lot of water available for for hydro, and um, there's some of that can be expanded. Although there's a limited um, amount of that in some areas that have the ability to tap into heat underneath the earth, then maybe you know more uh, utilization of of geothermal might be for for instance might be a good idea. There's also the concept of these small modular nuclear reactors that are working their way through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, as a way of kind of standardizing the, the build costs for nuclear. One of the, 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 one of the hard things about nuclear, which is a very low carbon technology um, when it's producing electricity, is that it's cost overruns. And pretty much every plant we've built has been somewhat of a custom plant, you know, and, and anytime you build something custom, it's more expensive. But the new ones that we're looking to build in factories, you know, we're, we're hoping to drive those costs down the same way that, you know, Ford or GM drives the cost down of an individual car by building just lots of them together. Let's go back to our voicemail box. My name is Rennie from Bloomingville, Ohio. I personally have put up 30,000 watts of uh, solar panels and bought a Tesla, allowed 30 acres of farmland to turn into a woods, but that only amounts to uh, slowing down the rate at which the straws pile up on the camel's back. Rennie, thanks for leaving us that voicemail. Joshua, transportation is one of the biggest sources of carbon pollution here in the U.S. We heard Rennie, one of the things he's done is, is to purchase an electric vehicle. Where do electric vehicles fit into the overall strategy to get America permanently off fossil fuels? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if we, you know, in the U.S., about 80% of our carbon emissions come from the energy sector, and about two-thirds of those are in electricity and transport. And just recently, the transportation sector overtook the electricity sector in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, in, in terms of total, you know, carbon emissions. I do think that the switch to electric vehicles is extremely important. One, because 
you know, if you buy a fossil fuel power car, that car generally is only going to get worse over time. But if you buy an electric vehicle, as the electricity grid cleans up, then that car actually gets better over time in terms of, you know, its associated, um, you know, carbon emissions. And every single, you know, car manufacturer from, you know, Accurate of Volvo is putting out or looking to put out electric vehicle lines, um, you know, uh, models in the next in the next uh, few years. And we're starting to see a lot of those come to market now. I One of the things I used to tell people is that, you know, as soon as your car is ready, is, if you have a car and you drive a car and you can't switch to some other mode of transportation, as soon as you're ready to, to get a new car, get an electric car. What I'm kind of telling people now is that if you can afford to do it, if you are you know, lucky enough to be able to afford to do it, then do it now. Because one, that helps you know, the car manufacturers make more and economies of scale, but it also helps move more electric vehicles to the secondary car market where a lot of lower income households actually purchase cars. And so if we're going to turn over the entire fleet, we need those cars to also start making it down to the used car market um, so that everybody you know, can afford an electric vehicle. We'll continue our discussion of the latest UN climate report after the break. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to talking climate solutions with this message from Ryan. This is Ryan from Basalt, Colorado. We built the first net zero performing arts center in the country here in Basalt, and it is powered by the solar on the roof. There's no gas line that comes into the building, so our community can enjoy arts, culture, and entertainment for years to come without using fossil fuels. It's our way of doing our part. Ryan, thanks for that message. We got this email from William who says, Here in Florida, our legislature just passed a bill at the urging of the Florida power companies to phase out net metering for home solar systems, thus discouraging home solar systems. The power companies say they will supply solar-generated power from large solar fields they would build and own. Is this better than homeowners installing their own solar power systems? Co, what do you think? Um, I think it's a yes and. We need to have kind of large-scale um, solar deployment. But, you know, there are plenty of uh, communities that are not connected uh, through kind of, say, an urban infrastructure. And in those cases, you know, it just makes total sense for people to put in place uh, systems either at their own homes or at the community level that can kind of service them um, and bring them closer to a net-zero lifestyle. As Co alluded to earlier, Joshua, the climate crisis can can feel overwhelming, and and when people hear too much doom and gloom, they they may sort of tune out. But I just want you to make clear with the technology we currently have access to, how far can we go in transitioning our our energy to renewable sources? So again, if we imagine a pie, <laughs> how much of that pie could we transition? Yeah, I mean, right now with kind of the, the technologies and the, the cost projections and, and everything that we, we have, you know, kind of depending on where you are, getting to 70, 75%, 80% renewable energy in a, in a given location is, is pretty possible, you know, with the, with the technologies we have. It's, it's pushing beyond that last bit to a total 100% um, where things get a little more kind of uncertain. But I mean, even our understanding of that has has changed significantly. I mean, just, you know, a decade or so ago, we were worried that low 10% of, you know, renewable energy would have, you know, taken the grid down. And last week, the Southern Power Pool, which is the grid that runs from Oklahoma to, to North Dakota, it ran on 90% wind 
basically for for a short amount of time, and the grid didn't go down, and you know everyone who wanted electricity was still getting electricity. So we're learning how to incorporate you know larger levels through better forecasting and better you know management and better data management of the of the system, and we're we're getting there. So we can get really really far uh, just with what we know today, and I'm sure we'll learn how to get further the, the the further we go along. So we can lower a lot of our emissions right now, but what about that that last portion? You said that would be more difficult to transition. What's what's in that portion? Yeah, so th- so that was on the on the electricity sector. So having more more firm sources of electricity, um, you know, things like more hydro or geothermal or nuclear or, or other things like that can be can be useful. Th- there's other sectors of the economy that are that are harder to abate. Um, industrial processes, high levels of heat, um, aviation, you know, things uh, things like that. Some of that potentially we could we could we could talk about hydrogen and hydrogen carriers, ammonia, things like other other types of fuels that we can make in a clean way. Um, they are energy intense to make, so you know, going to a high levels of hydrogen would also mean we would need a lot more. Um, electricity than we're um, than we're currently on track to uh, to produce. It's it's not that we can't get there. Um, it's just that you know some of them may be um, pretty expensive, which you know brings up some of the things in the IPCC report about um, you know carbon dioxide removal. Looking at some of the um, it may be cheaper to you know take it out of the air than it is to you know not emit it in the first place. Um, um, yeah, in the first place. Here's a tweet we got from Jenny. I'm working with Citizens Climate Lobby to push for bold federal climate policy, especially a price on carbon. We need to reduce emissions steeply. And we're getting a lot of questions about this, Joshua. What is a carbon price and, and what difference could it make? Yeah, so a, a carbon price essentially puts a, a price on the, the externalities of our energy system, of our energy use, um, that we're currently not paying. We're, we're essentially burning fossil fuels and emitting uh, greenhouse gases for free into the atmosphere. Now that, as, as the report painfully uh, points out, that, 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 that bill is coming due, um, and we're already seeing some of the, um, the effects of that. I, I do like the idea of a, of a carbon tax for its transparency and, and simplicity. And it also, you know, would... Um, it, it also would to, to, to get to something we were talking about earlier to those to those um, to those that consume more energy to those that um, you know are responsible for more carbon emissions and they would pay a larger share um, of that um, of the of the cost of those externalities that we're currently not paying for well some of you suggested acting locally like Jonathan from Olympia Washington I ran for city council a couple of years ago on a single platform of climate change I didn't win unfortunately uh, but I think the, the dictum, think globally, act locally, is the correct one. Uh, I think we all need to pitch in and do something because otherwise we're doomed. Now, much of this transition off fossil fuels will come down to local policymakers, whether it's land use zoning to allow for solar farms or you know, pushing landlords to use energy-efficient appliances. Joshua, if I'm a local policymaker listening right now, how can I use my position to affect the climate crisis? Yeah, absolutely. I think some of those things you just you just said are 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 key because we are unfortunately seeing some communities come up against you know the development of things like um, solar and, and transmission lines and and things like that. And I also think you touched on a really important point is that when we're talking about upgrading people's homes and you know maybe electrifying uh, energy use within the home, a lot of people in this country rent, and so. 
and they and the those who own the buildings aren't necessarily the ones paying the electricity bills and so there's a mismatch in incentives there and so you know developing policy that incentivizes you know landlords to have more efficient buildings for their tenants i think can can go a long way in terms of um you know making this transition more just because if all the if all the rich people, you know, put the solar on the roof and, you know, have very efficient homes and aren't buying as much, you know, energy or electricity anymore, we, we still need to maintain those wires and poles and transformers and everything that, uh, that we have on the system. And we don't necessarily want to turn, you know, efficiency policy into a reg- regressive tax on those who can't afford or don't have the agency to, to do so to their own homes. So, again, the report explains that emissions must peak by 2025 if we want to have any hope of still being at a reasonable global temperature for the future. I'm curious to hear from each of you what your biggest concerns are for the next three years. Zara, I'll come to you first. I mean, the big concern is the one that has hovered around us this entire time, which is political will. You know, we are at this stage where we do not have any more time to waste because we've been wasting the time on not acting fast enough. And so... I am concerned about the current conversations we are seeing at the highest level of government and would really want to see those conversations shift towards a more kind of collaborative embrace of climate solutions. Well, you mentioned carrots and sticks for those policymakers who are less inclined to address this crisis. What are what are the sticks there? I mean, the sticks are not providing the same kind of subsidies that we've had so far, uh, bolstering, say, the fossil fuel industry um, and really trying to shift where we're getting our energy and, you know, how we are supporting different industries um, to move away from these really carbon-intensive processes. So will we have carbon taxes? Will we have? Will we take away subsidies? These are conversations that are playing out in Congress. And I think we're really going to have to watch that space over the next couple of months to see, can Congress push through climate legislation pretty much before they all get distracted by the midterms and thinking about whether they're going to get elected again, you know, at the end of the year. And what about subsidizing renewable energy? Because we do subsidize the oil and gas sectors right now. What about that type of investment? Could that play a role? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime, you know, you use a, a policy lever like a, like a, like a subsidy to make a, a technology um, more affordable, it, you know, will get deployed you know, more often. And so I think, um, I think we need to move beyond what we've, you know, traditionally been subsidized. We, we do um, offer subsidies to wind and solar. Those have been um, stepping down um, in, at various stages in, in policy. I think we need to move to, we need to move beyond, we still use, still, um, still work to support those technologies, but also move beyond, you know, more things like storage and transmission and all the other pieces of the system. Um, other firm clean technologies that, uh, you know, carbon capture, everything, everything that gets us there, all the tools we have in the toolbox, I think we need to, we need to move forward quickly. And Co. very briefly, what's one tangible thing anyone listening right now can do to make a difference? I think people have got to keep hope. They've got to keep hope to optimism. We owe it to the generations that follow to do everything we can. It, it, we have it in our hands. The power is in our hands, and we can begin to make choices now that serve as a significant catalyst for change. 
That's Co Barrett. She's a vice chair of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the senior advisor for climate at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Also with us, Joshua Rhodes, a research associate at the University of Texas at Austin's Weber Energy Group, and Zara Hirji, a senior science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening.